0: Welcome to the ninth episode of Observable Stream. Our conversation today is with Pat Kwa. Pat is the previous CTO and Chief Scientist of N26 and an industry veteran with over 20 years of experience. Pat is the author of three books, The Retrospective Handbook, Talking with Tech Leads, and Building Evolutionary Architectures. Pat also runs a weekly newsletter for leaders in tech called Level Up and hosts a number of leadership courses that we'll link to in the show notes. Today, we'll be covering the third of his mentioned books, and chatting about evolutionary architectures. Joining me for this exciting conversation as always is my co-host Phil. How are you doing Phil? Good thanks. How are you Reagan? All good thanks. Very excited to chat today. Uh, Pat thanks for coming on to the podcast. Thanks for having me. Cool so um, evolutionary architectures. What makes a, an architecture evolutionary?
1: Yeah Um. so maybe it's useful if I step back a little bit just because um, yeah uh, it's useful to think about where it comes from. Um, you know after being in the industry for a while the way that we Think about software and architecture has changed quite a lot. So when I was first starting working in software, you know, we used to have um, architects uh, who would like write large documents. I remember uh, in one of my first jobs, uh, sitting on conference calls, reading through like a 300-page uh, architecture do- document for a very large system, trying to understand where our part fit into that. Um, Fast forward to today, um, you know, we've got open source libraries, we've got frameworks, we've got SaaS platforms, uh, lots of no code sort of platforms, software really, really looks different today. Um, And when I was working as a consultant, we sort of noticed this sort of shift towards uh, sort of thinking about software and the fact that it never really stops. And so, um, you know, when we were thinking about sort of uh, a word to describe what architecture looks like today, we felt that evolutionary architecture was a really good fit for that. Um, now, um, we had lots of options, like you know, continuous delivery, continuous architecture, agile, agile architecture, but we ended up settling for evolutionary because we feel the metaphor works quite well. Um, you know, I think one of the characteristics of evolutionary architecture is that it needs to be useful. So just like sort of evolution, you want um, you know species in real life to survive that adapt to their environment. Um, and similarly, you know, we want our architectures to be suitable for whatever business or organization needs they were actually produced for. So um, this is quite different, I think, from thinking about, you know, architectures that might be fun for technical people to play with, or architectures for some hypothetical. But really we want you know architectures to provide business value uh, to customers and to organizations. So that's definitely one characteristic of evolutionary architectures. The other one that we emphasize um, in um, the book that we talk about is also the idea of being deliberate about how you think about architecture. So um, if I think about sort of two extremes, you know, the beginning of my career it was very like architecture phase focused. In a lot of companies today, you don't—it's like almost a dirty word. Like we don't mention architecture. Ooh, we don't think about that, but it is still important. And I think that's where the balance is, which is about trying to be more deliberate about uh, sort of architecturally significant decisions. Um, and therefore, um, you know, the second sort of characteristic of evolutionary architecture is being sort of guided. And we talk about that a lot using the idea of sort of fitness functions where, where, um, where that's possible. Uh, so trying to be um, clear about what good looks like. And just like in a sort of artificial intelligence, um, you know, uh, or machine learning sort of models, uh, fitness functions don't really describe how something should be achieved. They really try to describe what, is, what does good look like? Right. So how do you know a model is successful um, and therefore how you implement it might actually change. Um, and so those two sort of elements um, are kind of key. And obviously um, what is kind of assumed now these days, um, but not always true for all organizations, is the fact that your system changes. So this is the sort of iteration. And so you know, going through different generations of software is the metaphor um, for us really about iterating over software. Um, And so a lot of the practices around continuous delivery are strong enablers to that, which a lot of modern software companies um, are used to. But there are also still many other organizations I still encounter where, um, you know, that's not necessarily the day-to-day case where they're releasing maybe three times a year if they're lucky. Um, You know, very different from very cloud-native organizations.
2: And is that then something that you observe has changed over time because the, let's say, the market or demand of, Tech companies and what we're now focused on, so especially in the e-commerce domain and the that that Reagan and I are working in, uh, you see that like moving fast and iterating quickly, and therefore the emergence of continuous delivery is important. It needs to be coupled with like the same cadence of architectural design and the the same like level of uh, caution when it comes to making bigger architectural decisions.
1: Yeah. Um. I I think there's you know I think um, where you both are uh, at is a relatively newer company, and so I think that's one of the challenges um, that you don't necessarily have is you don't have the sort of burden of legacy to a certain degree. Um, you know you're not really sort of breaking up an ecosystem of thousands of applications which you know lots of people still depend on. Um, and often what makes that difficult is less about the sort of software systems, but also about the sort of processes and cultures that are built up around that. Right, so. Um, I tend to think of software and this is also covered when we think about um, evolutionary architecture is that it needs to be fit and part of that fit also is it needs to work with the organization. And so that's one of the challenges, I think, or the opportunities for newer companies. So startups and scale ups that have um, uh, have been working in the last five, maybe seven years, is they get to start fresh with lots of new processes, lots of new cultures that are actually adept to this sort of change. Um, in larger organizations, you tend to have more rigid structures, perhaps, or rigid processes. Um, and part of the challenge, which is also not easy, um, is also then helping people you know, um, make transition onto new processes. So as a concrete example, when I was consulting um, you know, for some organizations, you used to have people whose jobs uh, were literally about preparing a release. If you go down the path of you know, continuous delivery, their kind of jobs are at stake, right? So um, for a lot of companies that still operate their own data center, that's what Cloud Native is, it's like, well, what do you mean? like? We're used to installing racks and network configurations and stuff like that. What will I be doing if we go down that path? And so that's kind of like a transitional thing that happens in our industry all the time. Uh, I guess where technology uh, sort of becomes more commoditized. And then it's an interesting question about what do people do if they've sort of built their whole career around those technology stacks?
0: So for for these more legacy institutions, how do they go from zero to say, like, if they have no incremental iterative processes in place um, how do they start getting uh, feedback loops how do they start um, this kind of process
1: yeah so one of the foundation um, like I guess set of practices um, that we think about for evolutionary architecture is the sort of foundation of continuous delivery and so um, I think that's really the best step there which is sort of getting to a point where um, you know you can release confidently on a more regular cadence right and that itself is a big journey a lot of companies are still going through that journey um, it's hard but it's definitely valuable um, and so I think a lot of the things that we cover in building evolutionary architectures isn't useful until you get some of those foundation practices there so for instance you know if you want to maybe change the way that you're um, um, I don't know design something, It's not very useful unless you can actually get it into production and actually test the behavioral differences, if it's improved or not. Um, And so, you know, we think about a lot of the continuous delivery practices uh, or maybe modern agile software development practices as sort of foundation practices. Um, And so that would be the starting point for a lot of companies. If they don't have those bare minimum, start with those sort of basic hygiene factors is what I would consider today um and you know it'll it'll still add a lot of value um but until you have those uh, you know a lot of the other things that we talk about you probably won't see the value uh, in a lot of the other
2: elements yeah makes sense and then uh, i think in uh, a lot in the book that you talk about is these uh, for uh, especially around fitness functions uh, for architecture is then attrib- attributing them to some sort of measurable illity if possible so the list of abilities which like an architect is uh, Kind of uh, raised on and and uses every day to kind of classify whether a system is meeting certain func- non-functional requirements, um, and I think that the a key challenge there is of the quantitative ones, so the ones you can actually measure and turn into a KPI. Um, uh, at what point do you? So you, what point do you build that into your delivery pipeline? So do you do you try and push everything left that can be pushed left? So you say, okay, well if I can test. Coupling within my code, then rather than doing this on an ad hoc basis, I want to push this to the CI and then make sure that we can't pass build unless it's like improved or that we have this agreed upon fitness function actually built into our deployment process.
1: It's a great question, and um, weirdly enough, I also tend to think about um, fitness functions in an evolutionary sense as well. Um, So, um, you know, when I think about fitness functions, I think a lot of people sort of, particularly technical people, when they're reading the book, they go, okay, automation, let's go do that, right? Um, But I kind of think about these things in terms of also, um, you know, uh, sort of a life cycle in that, you know, if you want to try a fitness function, then the best value low cost effort is trying to articulate that um, sort of illity or non-functional cross-functional requirement um, and just try to see how you're doing, right? So you might actually find it's hard to measure. um, Maybe the automation effort's not worth it. um, And maybe you're even not quite sure um, if you understand what maybe number or what does good look like, right? But I think there is some value in um, having conversations with teams about um, I don't know, um, security is like a good example. Um, we want our system to be secure, but we're not quite sure what good looks like yet. So let's go through those conversations and try to understand, okay, um, what does good look like, right? How much are we willing to invest risk and you know, uh, put in sort of measures uh, because there's effort there. And so I tend to think of that as a sort of first phase of, you know, the conversations uh, around fitness functions is the the big value of right trying to help people understand why, um, you know, this is important, why this much um, or how much effort you want to put in and what you get back. Um, and then I would start to then think about, okay, if you're, you know, using this in your organization quite regularly, maybe it makes sense to perhaps automate some elements because it's sort of saving the sort of second part of the governance side, right? So we've agreed upon these elements. Um, We've had conversations about how we do this. Maybe it's not so useful um, tech leads or or, um, senior people going around and sort of double checking or maybe people keep forgetting about these elements, right? So then I think I would probably put the effort into some of the automation aspects. Um, And then there's the interesting question about how, maybe as you said, how far do you push left in that? Um, also kind of depends on how people, how welcome people are to that sort of feedback. Um, You know, I think one thing I've learned with sort of automation and sort of mindless metrics is that uh, engineers, uh, great problem solvers, always find a way to game things and work around processes that they don't like. And so I think it's really important that people really understand the purpose of these things before sort of somebody cramming them into pipelines.
0: With the metrics like code coverage, or, I mean, you you have all of these arbitrary code metrics, which may or may not be correlated with high quality code, but you can fall into the trap of, oh, I've got co- code coverage of hundred percent. So there's no bugs in my code. Um, is, is there, are there strategies we can use to describe fitness functions that are difficult to quantify?
1: Um, so the way that I tend to think about these is fitness functions or, or when we quantify these things is a sort of a sort of almost like a contract of agreement. Um, now, when it comes to people, we don't always agree, and that's where I think it's important to have those conversations before trying to automate things. So the code coverage is a really good example, is that you know, the intent there is you know, we want to have perhaps confidence um, that when we change something, we're not going to break a whole bunch of things. But I also know of organizations that you know, are so focused on that sort of code coverage metric. People are very good at creating automated tests and forgetting about the assertions, and then they don't really get any value in the actual automation, right? So, or if you're not doing test driven development, um, you write some tests and you don't realize actually there's parts of code that are sort of being executed and maybe don't have the assertion because you never really test drove it, right? Um, So I think it's really important um, to have the conversations and the intent because um, ultimately when people are making decisions about design and code, um, they need to do so with as much information as possible. Now, um, it doesn't really scale for one person to always go around and sort of control everyone's or review everyone's decisions at a sort of high level. Um, And so automation is really only a quick way of trying to give some people feedback, but we really want people to understand the intent behind that. And so um, I would really focus on the conversation and understanding um, and then once again, um, then use automation as a way of helping people get that feedback.
2: Yeah, makes sense. And then I think a question that always comes to my mind is: is the when there is a project or or a, a legacy system or a system that's been worked on for a number of years, and uh, you have at some point the decision is whether you go for a rebuild from the ground up uh, or whether you keep iterating, and the kind of decision process of say, okay, well now is the breaking point, and we just we want to rebuild it for completely because we think we now have the better domain expertise, we have seen that the emergence. Properties of like, you know, non-functional requirements, security and testability and these kind of things have, have emerged over time. And now we need to rebuild the system with those in mind from from day zero rather than to iterate further. Like, what is a good way of making a decision between whether you just keep iterating and try and build these features and these things into the system apart, as opposed to just rebuilding from a ground up with a completely new architectural pattern?
1: Um, it's a great question. And the way that I tend to think about this is um, it always comes back to a business case. So um, software engineers aren't normally uh, used to putting business cases together. But a lot of this comes down to, you know, projected benefit versus the cost and investment. Um, in terms of, like, the cost, one of the things that I would be thinking about is, um, you know, um, how long or how hard is it to work with the existing system? Um, one of the great pieces of work that has come out over the last... I don't even know when the book came out, but maybe 20 years, was the Working Effectively with Legacy Code book, right, Uh, from Michael Feathers. And he talks about there are seams in software, and if you can identify where those seams are, kind of like points of low coupling, um, you might be able to sort of break a system up in sort of parts. Now, um, sort of working on maybe the internal of a part may be difficult, but actually if you can find that seam, that might give you a good point to be able to then sort of rebuild maybe that whole section as such and that's then a real business case at, down to you know your perception or maybe measurements as to whether or not you um, uh, um, can rebuild that or not. Um, I think today we have a lot of um, luck working with web technologies because by their nature web technologies are really like loosely coupled right So if we navigate from one URL to another URL we have no real understanding about the technology behind it. Um, and so that itself is a, makes it a lot easier to be able to sort of incrementally move things across because we can do a lot of interesting things with redirecting URLs from one system to another, um, and the user has no sort of impact. This becomes a lot more challenging if you're building, say, embedded systems or thick client systems. So, you know, you know if, if somebody is building a desktop application for Mac, um, you know, it's probably obvious if you ask a user to download a second app, uh, you know, that you're sort of doing things there. Um, in those sorts of cases um, you're sort of thinking about the overall total cost and one interesting you know strategy that a lot of people uh, think about this way is can you do things incrementally so um, you know you can still do some clever things even with a desktop client if you can find the right sort of seams in that you might still have the same say deployable your sort of application but internally you might find ways that you can start replacing maybe screens or things that still feel or look like the same sort of um at end application, um, but maybe behind the scenes, it's being replaced by a more modern, maybe JS based sort of uh, stack or something like that as well. And I think that's the re- where the really interesting point comes in uh, into, which is like, can you find sort of ways to incrementally migrate things? And then it's less about a question about, do you do a big bang rebuild? Um, or can you actually sort of incrementally sort of move things across? And I, see, I think that's the interesting challenges. Can you first find those sort of patterns and architectures? Um, but at the same time, one of the interesting things is also about the sort of urgency of how important that is. And I'm always reminded of the, um, uh, the Twitter fail whale. Um, I don't know if everyone remembers this one, but uh, uh, in the early days, uh, Twitter was um, based on a Ruby on Rails stack. And, you know, with their exponential growth and, and sort of boom, Um, uh, it would be quite common that their sort of stack wasn't quite performing to its scale. Now, when I think about that from an evolutionary architecture perspective, um, you know, they made the right choices, right? They wanted to go to market quickly. Um, They were maybe catering for a certain number of users, but regardless of their tech stack choice and architecture, they probably didn't build a system anticipating the, I don't even know how many, probably millions or maybe even billions of users, uh, you know, tweeting and sharing uh, sort of lots of different things. And so the natural consequences is that at some point, um, the system, regardless of what the technology or architecture, wasn't built to deal with the scale that they were at. And I remember they went away and furiously were like, and I, be, I believe it ended up being a Java app in the end, um, but you know they had to re it for the scale that they're sort of talking about. And so that's another element that I would be thinking about is the environment significantly different from what was originally done. Because at some point, um, you know, if your basic scaffolding was never designed for this type of environment that you're sort of working in, it becomes a lot harder, right? So, um, you know, at some point, for instance, if you're um, building a mobile app, I know some people like to use the multi-platform type thing. But at some point you might really, really want something that's very native to iOS or Android, for instance, and you know, that multi-platform just doesn't support it. At that point, you know, it might be justifiable to actually say, actually, we do really want that really rich native experience. And so our current architecture isn't suitable for that purpose. But we're conscious we're making a choice based on, you know, maybe the changes in the environment rather than like um, whether or not we can actually incrementally do things.
2: Yeah, yeah, definitely. Now, and then you see, of course, like technologies like React Native and Flutter doing very well because you kind of bridge both requirements. Um, uh, yeah, and you get the flexibility and also like increased development velocity because you, at, at some point, your application should be uh, a single application team. Of course, there's, there's always going to be native dependencies that you have and require expertise and uh, you need a CI-CD pipeline for both, um, for, for both packaging, uh, iOS and Android apps. But I think that's, Indeed, uh, a display of how even something as uh, I wouldn't say, well, let's just call it native. That it is native. Um, you're building a native applications. Um, it's just not nowhere near as easy it is to deploy that as it is compared to web applications or web services or even lambdas. Like if you, uh, I mean, how how easy is it to deploy a, a, a new a new version of an AWS lambda? Is like uh, is is remarkable really compared to how. Hard it is to deploy, let's say, a new version of some embedded system in a warehouse on the other side of the planet from a from a single uh, from a single location.
1: Exactly, and I think one of the things that we emphasize in the book um, is not trying to be too predictive. I think engineers love to do this, and this is the sort of planning horizon type element. Is that there's kind of like the um, you know the known perhaps um, knowns in that you know maybe your business wants to expand to a new market, and so that's kind of unknown. But where it goes wrong is when engineers start to like hypothesize the world in terms of okay well, let's build this thing just in case, and then you end up with too much complexity around that, um, and it never you know eventuates, and then you end up sort of having a very complex sort of architecture as a result. So you know I think we try to um, think about like focusing on those sort of big bets which have to be then connected to your you know business strategy about like knowing your customer and and knowing those um, sort of uh, potential cases, but not trying to be too uh, predictive because it's very yeah, often wrong in hindsight.
0: With, uh, with these large legacy systems, a lot of the complexity often comes from not the source code, but the data model, so the databases that drive them. And I imagine Twitter probably would have had to migrate their, their tweets across as well. Um, it, it, how, how do we keep our databases supple? How do we migrate those?
1: Yeah, it's a, it's a it's also a really great question, and my go-to book there is the Refactoring Databases book. I think it's one of the um, lesser-known parts of the Modern Fowler Refactoring series. Um, and Promode has had a lot of experience around sort of migrating around that, a lot of that sort of stuff. I believe you might be thinking about a book rewrite, but um, that book has lots of strategies around trying to, um, you know, think about change. I think one of the great things that Rails helped introduce, um, at least um, in the sort of frameworks sort of world, was the idea of sort of source controlling database changes. Like before that, it was always very like manually applied by DBAs, uh, and you'd have to sort of send... E- Back then, maybe not an email, but maybe a ticket and you'd have to attach things. Um, It'd be like a very different process. And I think one of the great things that Rails added was the idea of sort of migrations or putting your source control next to the system in terms of what you're talking about of capturing the sort of semantics of your sort of data model and things like this. I think um, one of the things I'm noticing a lot with, um, you know, more modern systems is, um, you know, we have a lot more ability with reactive and streams is that people tend to sort of use the sort of CQRS sort of idea of like trying to listen for events and you sort of separate maybe how an old system stores that um, sort of information and therefore when you uh, consume the event sort of effectively in two ways in your sort of old system you can also then uh, replicate that in a sort of newer data model. And so that allows you to sort of keep two different types of schemas effectively for the same information in place. Um, and that's an interesting sort of migration technique that I'm I'm hearing a lot more about in terms of how people migrate from one system to another. Um, you know that gives you a bit of sale, safe fail as well uh, or failback um, in terms of you know you can always go back to the old model in case you need it, which is very typical if you've already got like a large suite of reports running on those old database schemas.
2: Yeah, definitely, and I think the this uh, this idea of just increasing confidence in releasing software, uh, boiling down all the way from releasing a new version of your application, which we do pretty well, like you mentioned before. Like if, if you have a proxy in front of it, then you can just redirect. And you can do some. Uh, you can balance uh, uh, low balance between two equivalent deploy uh, new deployment and old deployment, see if performance is uh, is causing an issue. So you can even see the. Impact of the ilities or the changes in, in some of the ilities uh, in real time, which is extremely useful, of course, uh, with different deployment strategies. But also going all the other way down to the database. If if we can like if if there's really then the offering that there's always a uh, safety net for all of the most dangerous things you can do. You know, changing, uh, migrating a database, releasing a new piece of software, or a new version of a service. Then I think velocity there increases because continuous delivery also becomes much more. Advantageous or much more uh, reassuring to to do.
1: Absolutely, and and I, I think some of this you have to kind of like live and maybe get burnt by. Um, like I remember one application I was working on, even with all these good practices, right? And you know, as part of our database migration scripts, like I ended up with a uh, alter column uh, effectively rename of that column and this was not a good move when we went into production um, you know i think one of the things i learned from that was like having non destructive changes or at least you sort of spread them out over time so you know, if you do an alter table rename column, effectively it means that some applications, depending on the old column, stop working. So this is not a good approach. Um, and you know, the I guess the new pattern, even if you use these practices, was just sort of separate these over time. So you know, alter uh, table add column. You duplicate them for a while. You let software run for a couple of, you know, generations or weeks, depending on how your uh, release cycle is. And then at some point when you have confidence, nobody's using the old column, then you could eventually drop it. But, you know, you might want to have both things running for a while just to make sure that nothing breaks. Um, and some of that you just have to also learn through, you know, experience.
0: Shifting gears a little bit, um, in your book, you mentioned Conway's Law as as some law that drives how systems grow. Um, would you be able to touch on what Conway's Law is and perhaps how it, how it manifests in, in teams and software systems?
1: Absolutely. So um, Conway's law um, is quite an old law. Um, and um, basically it sort of states that the communication pathways of your organization will reflect themselves in your software architecture, whether or not you want it. Um, and I think when people think about architecture, they're not often thinking about um, you know, teams and organizations. We've actually come a long way uh, since we've published um, Building Evolutionary Architectures, and this idea is sort of expanded upon in the new book um, over the last couple of years around team topologies, um, in that, you know, if you want to architect supple software as sort of senior technology people, you also then need to think about, like, your organization design. So the classic example is, you know, if you have, say, um, your organization functional grouping. So you have like a group of front-end people, and they all work as a team. You have a group of sort of back-end people, they all work as a team, and then you have a group of database administrators who work as a team, separate from each other. Um, then, um, you know, within those functional groups, they'll probably collaborate quite well, but because they're in different teams, it's a lot harder to then maybe get agreement about something. And so, you know, somebody on a back end might create a weird API that works for them because they couldn't quite get agreement from a front end team. Um, and it kind of makes that sort of, um, you know, uh, yeah, API maybe. Internals work a little bit better, but maybe at the API boundaries, it's a lot worse. And so if you're trying to make an end-to-end change, um, so in team topologies, they talk about like a value stream about trying to make an end-to-end feature effectively. If you want to optimize for that, then you really want to think about making sure that all the people who are working across all those tech stacks are then um, close together so they can work on a much more optimal design end-to-end. Um, I think this is why we see in today's software that we tend to maybe favor more uh, cross-functional teams if your organization cares a lot more about end-to-end delivery. If your organization doesn't care about end-to-end delivery and enjoys, you know, having lots of handoffs between teams and tickets without actually (laughs) measuring a feature release to customers, um, then that will also be reflected in your organization processes. And so when we talk about um, Conway's Law in um, the book, we really wanted people to understand that sort of relationship between organizational design and to understand that, um, you know, how well you can build software um, is also determined not just by technical decisions, but also your ecosystem, so the processes and the organization structure. And so, this is where you probably um, need to start. Yeah. You know, increasing your ability to influence across the organization and also work with managers who typically make decisions about team structures, um, you know, dependencies across teams um, and sort of ownership about who can actually work on things. And so we really wanted to highlight that element is that you can't really be successful um, in building evolutionary architecture unless you're also intentional and think about the interplay between your organization design and also therefore your software architecture.
2: Yeah, one really, I think, Nice thing about team topologies is they divide it up into I think enabling teams, uh, stream aligned teams, uh, platform teams, and then uh, now I'm forgetting the fourth one, which is important. But the this idea that you by investing more in the platform, you have that a function or or a group of teams that are actually enabling the development on on other for other teams. So where you have uh language platform teams that actually are working on the language tooling frameworks. You have a testing platform teams that are working on the testing tooling, um and. You're making a more kind of um indirect investment so you're not you're not saying okay well here is a business here's a project it has these uh, these clear business requirements uh, i'm not going to invest 100 in the actual project itself but rather invest in the plane uh, which is then supporting all the other projects um, so it's quite a strategic investment i think from like a manager's perspective where you say well i'd rather not just directly invest all my resources in this in this one business feature um, but we need to also think about the long, long run, and how do we want to build up a platform team or a set of platform teams that are going to help enable those other teams and the other business priorities that come along because we know they're coming along. Um, but I find that's quite hard. I think because that's it. That's not a traditional organizational set up. So um, the I, I would think it would be hard to sell these kind of things to. Um, a traditional business to say, this is how tech works. We're not going to follow Conway's law in the way which we organize or or create our team structure because we're going to do it to optimize the whole tech process. Um, That's quite a hard thing to sell.
1: Yeah, I mean, I agree from a traditional business perspective. Um, I, I think it's it's interesting because um, there's so much confusion confusion over the term platform team, and there's good platform teams and maybe less effective platform teams. And this is where I think the evolutionary stuff sort of makes sense as well. Is that I think um, for some platform teams, or the less successful platform teams, I see those teams being too predictive around saying. Hey, here's the development teams, here is what you need, we will build this thing and you will use this thing. right? And typically, um, platform teams produce APIs, tools, and a team kind of goes, oh, it's really hard to use, I'm just gonna go off and like do my own thing on the side because like I need to work around this thing, I'm forced to use. Whereas the more successful platform teams, I think, see this more evolutionary sort of perspective. And this is where it's typically, You know, um, if you have, say, 10 cross functional teams, each building sort of services independently, then it's quite natural that people start to say, hey, like, we're rebuilding the same sort of build script. Hey, we're rebuilding the same sort of test automation thing. Wouldn't it be more effective in our organization if we started to share some of these things? And this is where, um, you know, then there's the business case coming back to this idea. Of okay, maybe it doesn't make sense for um, you know each team to be spending I don't know twenty percent of their um, sort of development cycle sort of on more infrastructure related stuff. The hard part there is um, within those ten sort of teams there will be some commonality, but there will also be some sort of heterogeneity where um, you can't necessarily have a single solution that works for them all. For instance, like even if you had all those different teams, the build process for a backend service written in Kotlin is going to be different from one written in Rust versus, say, an iOS build. And so this is where there's also some flexibility. And so I see that where the better platform teams are looking at that as a yeah, um, return on investment over the entire organization, but it's not like a forced solution that everyone has to use as a cookie-cutter approach. And that's a really hard sort of thing for managers sometimes to adopt because it means um, you know being a little bit more imprecise. It's not just a single thing that you can mandate. But it means sort of monitoring the teams and sort of feedback and then trying to make sure that actually it is delivering value overall. Um, And I find that if you can create a business case in that sort of fashion, then it becomes a lot easier from a uh, traditional business perspective because, you know, at the end of the day, um, you know, business people who don't understand tech, they always want to do more. They obviously want to release more features. And so if they say, you know, if you have a strong business case that says, hey, we're spending X amount of time doing these kind of infrastructure things, which are important, and we can cut that into like a third of your time uh, if we, you know, have a small team over here, um, I don't know of any business person that would say no, as long as it's framed well from a business case perspective.
0: Seems a lot of these evolutionary principles uh of complement agile very well um, and i think agile as a methodology has had a lot of buy-in from outside of the software engine in- industry um why isn't agile in-, in and of itself sufficient for some organizations why do we need uh anything more than that
1: a uh, fantastic question and um i think one reason for that is um also agile gets very misinterpreted i think Um, In a lot of organizations, Agile is sort of synonymous with, say, Scrum, and Scrum, for instance, doesn't really do anything with technical practice, at least in the original incarnation. I know that it has evolved a lot more, got more complex, Um, but, you know, a lot of people tend to think about Agile as, okay, we do sprints, we do sprint demos, we do sprint plans, and we don't need to invest in technical sort of agility, Um, And so I think that's where, um, you know, I find it's less useful when I talk to executives and business people about Agile. Um, but really talk to them about are they reaching their business outcomes quickly and with confidence, um, because I think um, yeah, when you start to talk about how things are getting delivered, um, you can be sort of nimble and quick from a quick perspective with sort of scrum. But if you're not investing in your sort of technical agility and your practices, you'll start to find things start to slow over time very quickly. Um, and so I think that's probably one reason why, um, yeah, it sort of has been diluted, I think, the term Agile uh, to be synonymous with Scrum.
2: Yeah, it makes sense. Then uh, maybe maybe going back to the uh, fitness functions, um, because I think this is still uh, uh, a really, um, yeah, interesting, interesting one to cover. I think um, that whilst I think, if if you give a if you give a team a uh, or a team or a group of uh, a group of developers just the task of then architecting a system um, with some fitness with a fitness function in mind and they want to add then a different um, uh, non functional requirements so they add maybe a perspective they see okay security is important testing is important um, these are maybe the the known ones and of course the list of non functional requirements is enormous and you're likely going to overlook something at some point. Um, how do you, how do you like optimize linearly um, and evolve the fitness function over time uh, to also in, like to also factor in these unknown unknowns? Because um, I think it's uh, yeah, it's 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 clear that a lot of these, at least in my experience, a lot of these non-functional requirements are emergent. So okay, the, especially if you're a young company, then you start to care mainly about just shipping uh, functioning software don't care too much about it being too quick, don't care about it being too secure, don't care about it really being uh, uh, too testable. And then they emerge over time. Um, And then how do you, what's the best process for teams to, let's say, get in the mindset of revisiting their function, uh, their fitness function?
1: Um, Great question, because I think um, it alludes to something that we probably didn't communicate very well in the first version of um, building evolutionary architectures, um, which is, um, I think when people read that sort of section on fitness functions, they think that there is only one fitness function for the system. Um, Now, we tend to think of fitness function as a sort of fractal concept is that, yeah, you could say there's one fitness function, is our system fit or not? But in reality, you end up having numbers of fitness functions for different characteristics, depending on you know what you're actually trying to trying to create. Um, what you know, some of them may be automated, some of them may be more manual as such. Um, and so, you know, going to your point about how do you evolve some of these things, then it's an interesting question about like, do you have um, more discrete fitness functions for different aspects that are maybe more granular? So you, know, you talked about security as a good example. Um, and um, what I'm really excited by um, is uh, the sort of DevSecOps space. So uh, we hear a lot about the DevOps space, but maybe less about the DevSecOps space, where there are people who are trying to provide a lot of, say, automated fitness functions around um, security compliance. So um, as an example, there are things that you can run in production. Um, that are. So this is what we talk about, sort of automated continuous. Um, you know, if you have servers and you say, okay, all web servers should only have, say, port eighty and four four three for SSL open, uh, you can run some tools now that basically goes to every box and then does a port scan, and um, you know your, that fitness function will fail if it finds open ports, which is an indication typically it's been maybe misconfigured or manually maybe. or something and and a new port has been opened up. Um, That's really exciting space to sort of see more of that sort of automation around that sort of security aspect. Um, uh, And, um, yeah, that's only one sort of type of fitness function for that sort of element. But, you know, when you talk about, say, um, scalability or performance tests, um, you might have a different sort of fitness function to test that particular characteristic. Now, all those things put together, you could consider the suite of things that you do as a, a one comprehensive fitness function. Um, but I think this is the way if you think about these things as trying to turn something that's important to you more into an objective criteria, um, then you can think about how many of those things are already objective. So um, the usability um, is an interesting one because that's very difficult to, to automate. And my favourite example of this is um, the UK digital services, so uh, government digital services (GDS). Um, so um, government websites are typically really hard to use. But one of the things I really appreciated with a lot of the GDS sort of um, uh, policies is that they try to um, have a fitness function. They describe it differently, but basically a rule: whenever anything gets published onto the GDS website, um, it should be readable by a fourteen-year-old person. So it should be understandable by a fourteen-year-old person, and so this. This means the language then has to be sort of simplified, um, um, non-bureaucratic, very clear. um, But there's a really simple objective criteria is that could you put this in front of a 14-year-old and would they understand it, right? It's not necessarily maybe automatable, um, but it's a nice sort of simple objective criteria that sort of goes to the readability aspects or usability aspects of their website.
2: Yeah, definitely. It's like uh, also the Reddit, uh, Eli5 is also a good one. So you have extremely complex ideas from physics and different scientific groups. And then you go there and you, you uh, well, if you don't, st- if you still don't understand something after reading one of the Reddit posts, then you definitely feel a little bit insecure. I can tell you that for a fact. But it's interesting, you touched upon then uh, performance as one of the like non-functional requirements that I think literally pops up as number one as into everyone's mind when you think about how do I build uh, a well-architected system? where You think, okay, well, it's got to be performant uh, because we have to deal with the unknown of demand in the future. So security is harder to gauge because you don't know. Maybe maybe it's not in the lexicon of of the average developer. What is what are the attack vectors? Uh, how do I measure? How do I measure risk? How do I measure the potential uh, uh, endpoints? Uh, these kind of things. Um, but whereas performance, we all as developers have spent a lot of time trying to optimize our code just to go faster and faster and faster because I think developers just seem to like fast things. Um, and I think one of the interesting um, uh, points that Martin Kletman raises in his book, uh, Designing Data Intensive uh, Applications, is, uh, well, you yeah, have performance as a functional requirement, but you need to actually first pick out what are the load parameters that you're actually interested in in optimizing um, because you can't just simply optimize for requests per minute. Um, you need to also consider a, a huge variety of different external uh, variables that are going to impact the performance of your system. And if you just optimize for one data set and seeing how fast you can get it, then uh, that's also just a too uh, single-dimensional uh, that you're also going to just uh, develop a fitness function that's just not adequate for for your future scale. So picking out those like, Low parameters, whether that's like how big your user base is, how much how much data have you got in your database, um, uh, how many uh you know uh, security checks or how many uh authorization uh, authentication layers you need to go through, um, number of microservice number of hops you need to do over rest and these kind of things, uh, are all I think really important first to have the discussion about what what that looks like or what the low parameters should be.
1: Yeah, and, and I think if you discuss that, then that's exactly the thing that we hope that you think about. And that's really the discovery of what is that fitness function that you care about. Um, because I think performance is a, another good example in that not all systems really need to be performant, right? So if you think about like an internal content publishing sort of system for your internal sort of employees, that's probably going to be very different from, you know, content that's going to be consumed by a API um, by thousands or hundreds of millions of clients, right? So. Um, often internal systems don't have the same performance characteristics therefore you don't necessarily need to have you know be so aggressive with that sort of scaling function not true for all things I mean I know with picnic there's backend operational things that probably need to have you know the same throughput in relation to like waters but there will also be some systems that are maybe used by like a small team of like five or ten people they don't need necessarily the same performance characteristics it
0: seems like these uh, fitness functions they also have, The double role of also communicating what teams find valuable so even from from like a development uh, motivation standpoint or having a direction within a team i think that it's probably quite valuable as well um have you experienced that with uh, consulting with teams that uh, developers are more happy when they're aware of this fitness function that they're working towards
1: absolutely because i I think the thing that we like with the fitness function is a separation over what good looks like from how you're expected to go and fulfill that. And I think that's where the autonomy, which everyone really loves, um, comes into play, which is it helps to sort of define the problem space more precisely, but it still gives the team maybe freedom about the designs or how they go about approaching the solution, as long as they satisfy the, the criteria of that fitness function. Um, and so I think yeah you hit a really great point there um, around like it helps with that sort of engagement um, because it allows people to problem solve, which is what everyone loves doing in software, but it maybe
2: provides a clearer constraint about what a good solution looks like. Yeah, definitely. Then um, maybe one more technical question I have in mind is that you have teams then are focusing on optimizing their own fitness function. Uh, so that is, we have... Uh, we have a, a, I don't know, a product or a set of products, set of microservices that we're working on. We care about the domain within these microservices. Um, but where it starts to get a bit blurry for me is when you have uh, a lack of responsibility or uh, uh, a lack of, maybe not responsibility, probably not the right word, but motivation to also think outside of the team. So, you, you know, you're, you're trying to optimize your own services. You see your team has to uh, provide these SLAs, security and uh, testability. They need to keep developing their uh, um uh, they're also their, uh, their their solutions for their customers, um, but who who should be looking at let's say the most optimal way for all services in an entire organization to communicate? So, who how you know where where do you make decisions in organizations around whether you should use gprc uh sorry grpc um amqp rests. Um, like these different communication protocols now you have like socket, which is the uh, reactive uh, L7 protocol but well, yeah when it comes to that's just one angle of course when it comes to performance and, uh, and you know the security and uh, how easy it is to integrate applications together but what's what's the best or what's a good or- organizational structure to care about those things
1: I don't think there is a best um, I think one of the interesting things when we make decisions is that there's going to be trade-offs um, and I think it's an interesting question about like what sort of things do you care about as an organization, culture, and therefore trading off. I think um, my two classic counter examples or contrasting examples is how I tend to think about how Amazon works versus how I think um, Google works. Um, I haven't worked in either, so these are all sort of based on people I talk to and hypotheses. But, you know, I think if we take the very extreme of Amazon, you know, they talk about two pizza teams, they should only talk through APIs, Um, you know, nobody should know about the insides. Um, Whereas if you think about Google, which is known for their mega monolith, um, everything is sort of centralized, Um, then it's an interesting question about how do decisions between sort of teams or products get made? In the sort of Google perspective, um, you know, um, it's probably going to be a more centralized committee, uh, senior sort of group, because they sort of see the impact on everything around that. In the sort of Amazon model, you probably end up um, having many more interfaces because you kind of have to create contracts and negotiate with different teams that are effectively independent businesses or companies. Um, Once you publish a contract, you kind of have to maintain it as well. And I think that's one of the interesting things is that, you know, if you're trying to change stuff um, across all of Amazon, I can imagine that's going to be very, very hard because effectively you have lots of independent teams doing whatever they like. Whereas in Google, because it's more centralized, if you're trying to make a change across the entire product suite, you're probably going to be able to sort of almost push it through because everything's a lot more centralized from that sort of side. Um, and so I don't think one model is necessarily better than the other. I think they're organization cultures optimize for different things. Um, And so that's an interesting thing for your organization to probably think about is like what sort of level, I don't think any company is as extreme as either of those two. Um, They're sort of maybe somewhere in the middle. Um, And it's kind of interesting about how that sort of comes up. So what I see a lot in maybe more, um, maybe to give a more concrete example of like more modern organizations is um, let's say that your company has say, let's go back to 10 teams um, you know, in order for teams to maybe be more effective, it's quite common for maybe the technical leader, a representative from each team. maybe it's typically like a tech lead or an engineering manager getting together and actually sort of coming together, you know that's sometimes called an architecture guild or a forum um, where people are talking about like challenges that they're having. And simply by that sort of exchange they're simply talking about, hey, like oh, you're also having a problem with, I don't know, like how we send events to each other. Um, You know, that spontaneity means that there's visibility and then maybe that sort of group agrees that, you know, a smaller group like a working committee uh, start to work on that particular problem across that. There are other companies where they have maybe a principal engineer or somebody who is looking over this, specifically looking for some of these pain points and not hoping that it kind of surfaces from the bottom up. Uh, or they're not maybe betting on that. So, you know, they have somebody who is responsible. Maybe it's the CTO, maybe um, it's principal engineers, different people, but people who are more actively looking for those things to try to maybe um, centralize or agree on maybe more common benefit quicker rather than hoping it sort of surfaces. So none of these approaches are necessarily better or worse. I think, once again, depends because uh, obviously there's also like salary or headcount costs associated with this. Um, And so there's a sort of a question about what is important in your organization.
0: It seems like with uh, a lot of modern software development, we're more dependent on external software as well. So we can manage internal software architecture, but we're also dependent on like packages on NPM, or we have Log4J on Maven. And... Often we're introducing code that is not managed within our own team. Um, is there anything we can do to protect ourselves from the software unreliability from external factors? So e- external codes that might be influencing our, our architecture.
1: I'm glad you brought up the uh, log4j uh, sort of situation, because I think in the Java world, I think everyone knows about this. In the JavaScript world, you know the left uh, JS uh, debacle that happened many uh, years ago. Um, yeah we have a lot of dependence we have a lot of externality and i think this is an interesting question around um how important is it to your organization so as an example i know there are some organizations that invest a lot more because to them they also want to make sure that they have security of which libraries that they sort of use and vet and so they've set up a process to effectively you know you don't just reach out to um uh nps or to maven central is that there's like a a sort of vetoed party of um you know approved libraries effectively one of the natural consequences there which developers typically don't like is that it's a bit slower because obviously in order for something to make it into a more approved sort of central um it needs to be reviewed right and typically that's a bit more of a human process which can never be up to date as much as like what somebody just pushes into production. But there's an interesting trade off over what your organization values is that they, do they want to invest a little bit more in, say, security, um, or do they uh, sort of just want people to go, you know functionality, right? So there's an interesting kind of perspective there. Um, and once again, it comes down to, I guess, how much is that an important theme for your organization? Um, you know, depending on industry or regulation, sometimes this is going to be mandated. Um, and then once again, this is something that you probably have to decide. So for instance, in the world of ad tech, it's a very messy because typically those things aren't worried about. They don't really seem to care about that as an industry so much. Um, but if then you go into the more regulated, say, um, FinTech, HealthTech, um, uh, those things tend to, to be more important
2: yeah definitely i think an interesting one that you mentioned there because like yeah you have organizations who are built upon open software and the promises and the goodwill of people and there is this uh, famous uh, google i think no say famous uh, xkcd with uh, the state of kind of software projects and how you have like one tiny little project which is actually holding up all the rest that's maintained by some guy in nebraska uh on his own and doing it like with no uh, with no thanks um but the Google actually then released a blog post that actually, uh, where they did some research into trying to measure as well, the, uh, the health of open source projects. And they have there a fitness function, actually quite an extensive formula where they're measuring all sorts of uh, GitHub activity, number of comments, how, how, how often they release, um, you know, what is their kind of cadence uh, for releases. Uh, and whether they keep to them and these all these kind of things and it, and it's you know kind of boils down into this one big function and then spits out a number and then you have a a ranking um, of like the most critical yet uh, the probably the the least well supported open source projects and and the same is I guess for security as well uh, I'm not even sure if they actually have security as one of their parameters for the function and whether you could feasibly measure that you know number of majors or, or you know number of ten out of ten CVEs that you've seen for that open source project I guess would be a start but yeah I think. Maybe. Do you know the name of that? That's fascinating. I I, I didn't. I haven't heard of that
1: one. So. I I was
2: trying to Google it then actually, but it's not coming up in of my search history. Uh, I will definitely send it and put it in the notes afterwards. Um, but yeah, I think I think it was a few years ago. I, really, I hadn't heard of that. before. Yeah. yeah. No. It's uh. It's we use it um to do a quick analysis of of all the open source projects that we uh, depend on in Pynik. And indeed, there's a couple of uh, a couple of ones that uh, that spring up as like, well, we this is a really fundamental piece. Of, uh, of what we uh, what we use at painache and um you know how it starts a conversation of what ifs um, disaster plannings these kind of thing but um yeah it, it, at the end of the day it's kind of fortunate that log 4j uh, as an example um is a relatively well supported uh framework and there was also for one of the versions and uh, a lot of companies out there were still depending on the old version which had them covered uh yeah so um, it, it's obviously clear that no software package is safe because just you know the whole log4j debacle was just amazing that these uh, that these functionalities exist in uh, in these kind of projects that you can do remote code execution actually as a feature um and when you hear about the feature you're like okay well we don't have, you know, the need to do LDAP to so call an LDAP server and and uh, execute some arbitrary code. But maybe there's a case where you need to look up a, a user or something based on a user ID when you're doing the logging, and then you write the username to the log rather than just the user ID. And these things make sense when you think about them. But yeah, really, really scary, uh, scary stuff.
1: It's scary. Yeah, I mean, I I think for all of us in software today, security is such a big, um, interesting topic. That we should be thinking about some level of that. And what I really like is, um, you know, in the past, um, you used to have like a security team that was very, like, you can't do anything until we approve it kind of thing. Uh, we seem to have flipped into a. Everyone is producing so much stuff, security team can't keep up. Um, and now we're kind of in this sort of, uh, you know, maybe in better organizations where security is trying to work out how to scale themselves. And one of those ways that I see is very successful is by bringing that security conversation much earlier into the sort of development process. So. When I think about um, you know good development processes that take security seriously, one of the very common things to do is like to do like a threat modeling session as part of like a product discovery. So if you're about to build a new significant feature or product, um, you know most people are thinking about the creation aspect. They're not thinking about how well can it be abused. Um, And so there's lots of stuff out there that teaches development teams how to run uh, sort of threat modeling sessions. Um, And that itself is what we would consider a sort of non-automated sort of fitness function is that like you're building it into your development process early. Um, You can't necessarily automate all the ways that somebody might abuse your system because humans are very talented, but then you can apply that same human sort of creativity, um, but you know deliberately as part of that sort of early process to understand how somebody might abuse a feature um and that's a really good sort of non-automated example of what we'd consider also a fitness function if security is important for you so we'd encourage more people to do more threat modeling uh during the development processes as well it would help everyone
2: <laughs> yeah definitely i think um i think i'm interested to see you know beyond security for security is like all the uh, uh, getting the importance and then and the recognition that it deserves these days and uh uh, and it, it is at the forefront and whilst most companies aren't in this dev uh, dev sec ops, uh, mindset that you do see the gradual shift uh, towards this and threat modeling and even trainings very basic trainings are a great way to actually kickstart that um so actually you know just going over the very primitive basic vulnerabilities that your uh, tech stack that you're using within your product team is actually vulnerable to um and then building up kind of an expertise uh, within the within the team uh and and of course then the, the, in, in an ideal situation, the security team could be working on all of the you know uh, code scanning, vulnerability checking, and container scanning tools um, to kind of control, not control, but to get a, an overall um, uh, kind of fitness function over the entire organization's tech stack. Um, rather than getting teams to do this themselves and to build that into their own pipelines, but kind of giving them that as a product. Like, here's a security team, we're working on this product for you guys, and it's it's going to be this uh, this tool that does all the scanning and tells you what numbers are good and what numbers are bad. Um, because maybe the the team themselves, it's too much to ask for an architect or, or, or a senior engineer in a team to to be an expert on all of the illities. Like, maybe they're really strong in performance, but they lack their knowledge in security or the best practices. And that's where you see the emergence of these Uh, functional roles where you have like tech QA, you have security, and you have other roles that are really dedicated to a a handful of of, uh, non-functional requirements and are experts in them.
1: Absolutely. And I I think what you talked about was like a, a good thing here, which is like the sort of trend that we see is that, you know, you can have these functional sort of roles, but they're not necessarily blocking. So it's not like you have to wait for approval. It's really about sort of trying to make this knowledge or information accessible and, you know, giving tools or giving people more of that sort of awareness so that people who are making decisions can make better informed decisions, but they're not necessarily blocked from making decisions. And I think that's a big sort of key aspect of um, evolutionary architectures.
0: I think uh, that's as good as time as any to, uh, to call this conversation to a close. Um, thanks so much, Pat, for coming on and sharing all of your extensive knowledge. It's been fascinating listening to you. Um, yeah, where can uh, people find out more information about what you do and um, yeah, how, where can they find you on the internet? Uh,
1: thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed the conversation as well. Uh, people can find me at my website, patqua.com. Uh, um I have a blog there um, and also uh, on Twitter. Um, you can also follow me at patqua uh,
0: on Twitter. Perfect. Uh, yeah, we'll have uh, links in the show notes to all of that as well, so um, any curious listener can uh, check that out. Thanks, for uh, for joining.
2: Yeah, thanks very much, Pat and Reagan. It was really interesting to talk. But, uh, uh, we should definitely follow up again and do one in the, in the future.
0: Definitely. Cool. Cheers, gents. Thanks very much.
1: Thank you. Bye.